That was so beautiful, Alyssa. Thank you so much. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father God, we want, we want so many things. And we don't always get what we want. In fact, sometimes we get things we didn't even imagine would happen. And like Alyssa saying, help us to want you and to know that you're good, even when things don't look like it. Amen. So Jeff is gone this weekend. He's been gone a little bit. And I really miss him, so I'm going to be doing a sermon on grief today. <laughs> it's the power of grief, and it's a weighty sermon. Grief comes from the Latin gravare, and it means weight. It's where we get gravity or a grave situation. And when we're grieving, we can feel it. It bows us down. Bereaved means to be robbed, and we've been robbed lately. Since 2020, we've been robbed of loved ones. We've been robbed of a sense of security. We've been robbed of the illusion that tomorrow will be like today. We've been robbed because everything has been ugly and politicized so often. I'm going to read to you today and discuss three stories from the Bible. One you may not have heard, the second one you may have avoided, and the third one I think that you'll know well. And we'll be looking at these stories in the context of grief and loss and what the power of grief did in their lives and how they chose to respond to grief. I was thinking there are two kinds of choices we make in life. You could divide it in two categories. One is the choices that you make on who to marry and what job you will have and who and what you will worship or serve. And the result of these choices will curse you or bless you. But what about the difficult things that happen to you that you did not expect? that you did not sign up for, that you did not choose. Is there still choice in those kind of situations? I want to posit that there is, and that the choice that you make in response to hurtful and ugly and unimaginably horrible situations will make all the difference in your life in the life of your family, and possibly in the life of generations to come. We have choices. They say that nothing is for sure but death and taxes, and I always wanna add things when they say things like that. I wanna say God's love, and I would also say change. Life changes, and there are many kinds of losses besides death. The three stories I'm gonna to address today, the losses are death but there are many kinds. The loss of cognition, the living loss of having a parent with Alzheimer's or dementia, the loss of mobility, the loss that comes through divorce, the loss of innocence. There are many kinds of loss, and we always have a choice of how we will respond. 
It's been said that life is not primarily what happens to you, it's how you choose to respond. Because grief will have its say, people. We were not meant to be a container for grief. We were meant to process grief. And if you sublimate grief and push it down, if you medicate it, if you try to avoid it or deny it, it will still have its say. It will come out on someone who doesn't deserve it when you least expect it. It will come out in ulcers. It will come out in migraines. It will stunt your growth and mute your relationships and your ability to love. Grief is powerful and it will have its say. So what will we do in response to the difficult things that we have no control over? Will we create new realities or will we implode or slowly waste away or in anger destroy? The choices we make in response to hardships, to the loss of a dream, of how you thought things were gonna be. Those choices will not only impact us, but those we love, and as I said, possible future generations. So what are some choices that we can make in response to grief and loss? Anger, anger is what I go to first, because it feels unjust. Will we have anger that pushes God away? or anger that informs us and then lets us make choices? Will we have anger that simmers and eats away at who we are? Will we deny God's existence altogether because he must not be good? Or will we resort to deism because if he didn't answer this prayer, then there's no way he's involved until maybe Jesus comes. Maybe we'll think we're trusting or pretend, but grow cold. Maybe we'll make up a reason um, for the loss that happened. Um, they used to say of my mother who died in the car accident, well, she was young and maybe Jesus took her so she didn't sin later and lose her salvation. Will you stay in the room and duke it out with God like Job or will you shut the door? Will you grow poisonously bitter? The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Psalms says, but will you let him be near? Will you let him comfort you? Or will you kick him away and say, if you're not gonna do this, then no way am I gonna let you comfort me. You could have kept it from happening. It's hard to stay in the room when you're hurting. It's easier to leave when you don't understand what God is doing. So we're gonna look at three biblical stories of grief because we live out our life in stories. We understand our life in stories. And grief is a story that needs to be shared. And we grow and that weight gets less when we share our stories in safe places. And we grow and we understand and we are blessed when we listen to other people's stories of grief. So here are three messy, real life stories. They may be different than your story. As I said, all of these deal with death, but also they are like some of the things some of you have lived. And grief 
is grief. And you will recognize parts of your life in these stories. And the question we'll be asking as we look at the stories of Shira and uh, Rizpah and Absalom is how did they respond to the loss? How did they respond to what happened? How did Shira respond when it looks like God's promises were not going to be kept? How did Rizpah respond when God did not seem good? And how did Absalom respond when injustice was not addressed? So we'll look at their responses and we'll look at their choice. And if you'll turn with me in 1 Chronicles 7, because Chronicle chronicles the story of Shira. And I will just tell you that I had never heard of Shira until I decided to take God up on his word that every word was important. And I was reading Chronicles, and this time I was going to pronounce every word out loud. Is this going to help me, God? I was kind of challenging him. And in doing so, I found these little stories that I would never have seen. And Shira was one of them. If you're old enough, you might remember there were two cartoons, cartoons that I wasn't allowed to watch, but I saw commercials. And one, they were like as superheroes. And one was He-Man, and the other was She-Ra. And she was powerful, and she was like a superhero. And um, today we're going to look at the biblical She-Ra. In 1 Chronicles 7, we're going to read 20 through 24. All right, here were the sons of Ephraim, Shuthalah, and Barad his son, Tehath his son, and Eliada his son, Tehath his son, Zabad his son, Shulitha his son, they kind of did some of the same names in that family like often happens, and Ezer and Eliad, and this is what happened to them. The men of Gath who were born in the land killed them because they came down to raid their livestock. Now, there's a little ambiguity in this because we don't know, first of all, how closely tied Ephraim was to these relatives, but I'm gonna just go with they were his sons and grandsons. And we don't know who was killing the cattle. Was it the men of Gath who came to kill the cattle of the Ephraimites, or was it the Ephraimites who went to get the cattle of the men of Gath? It's a little bit ambiguous, even if you speak Hebrew, which I do not, but I checked with somebody who's a scholar. And this is what I think. So the Ephraimites, they were shepherds, they were herdsmen. I don't think they needed the men of Gath's cattle. But they weren't soldiers to go take it. But the men of Gath maybe been really happy to take the Ephraimites' cattle. I want you to look how Ephraim dealt with the loss. Because let me tell you something. It says Ephraim mourned many days. There are very few losses harder than when a child or a grandchild dies. It's a loss of the future, and we were not meant to outlive a child or a grandchild. But his brothers came to comfort him, and he chose life. He chose to try again, and he had another son. And that son's name was Bariah. And as often happens, the Bible name matches the situation, and they called Bariah disaster has fallen on my house. 
This is especially discouraging and disastrous if you could add anything more to the story. Because if you'll remember in Egypt, when Joseph wanted Ephraim and Manasseh blessed, Jacob blessed them, but he crossed his hands and he said that Ephraim would be even stronger than Manasseh. And he said of Ephraim that there would be a great nation. There would be many tribes. Well, how is that gonna happen if sons and grandsons are killed? That's not what God promised. How is that gonna work out? And there are many times that it seems that God's promises are being subverted. I love this quote by Matthew Henry, who has, is a great commentator of the scriptures. God's providences often seem to contradict his promises, but when they do so, they really magnify his promises, and they make the performance of the promise so much more illustrious. Have you had it happen in your life where you felt like God promised you something and it didn't happen and you were so discouraged? And then maybe it did, but in a different way. So let's get to Shira. She grew up in the context of grief. She was probably Bariah's daughter. She knew the stories. Bariah probably told her what his name meant. And they recounted the loss of these men that were so important to the Ephraimite family. So what did Shira do? Shira's name means remnant. She was one of the ones left. So did Shira, like Deborah, get Barak and the other men together and go fight the men of Gath? No, she didn't. She wrestled with God and that isn't what the right thing to do was this time. Can you imagine what she did? She said, that's not ever gonna happen to my relatives again. And she built three cities, Upper and Lower Beth Horon and Uzen Shira. I don't know who named Uzen Shira, but it means listen to Shira. She was wise and she was creative and her response was a loving, creative, life-giving response. In the Bronze Age and later in medieval times, etc., those cities would have been walled. And you could have gone in if somebody was coming and there would have been a walled area outside for the cattle. And if you really needed to because you were under attack, you could bring the cattle in. And I believe even though there's not a direct line in scripture, it makes sense to me that she built a place so that her people would not be vulnerable like that again. And I'm gonna tell you something cool. It blessed posterity, not just because people didn't get killed, but later, much later on, Joshua, when he was fighting on the day he asked for the sun to stand still, do you know where he was standing? In between upper and lower Beth Haran. Let's look now at Rizpah. This is one of my top three least favorite stories in the Bible, and I cannot even believe that I am preaching from it. I hate it so much. But here we are, because this is a story of grief, and it's an important one. If we can look at 2 Samuel 21, we're gonna read 2 Samuel 21, one through six. Awesome, all right. 21, one through six. 
Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said, there is blood guilt of Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them. Saul had tried to wipe them out in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make expiation that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put anyone to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I should do for you? And they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, and that would be destroy us utterly, so that we would have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be handed over to us, and we will impale them before the Lord at Gibeon, on the mountain of the Lord. And the king said, I will hand them over. So many questions about this story. Is that God's justice? Do two wrongs make a right? Should David, who inquired of the Lord, how do we deal with this stain on the land so you will listen to us again? Should he have inquired of the Lord again when the Gibeonites said, we want those seven and we want to impale them? But I also want to say that our culture's understandings were much different than theirs. We hate the horror of those seven sons being impaled. And if I let my imagination go there, that the sons that I loved and raised and saw from little babies were there, not buried, and out for the birds and the animals, if I go there just a little bit in my mind, I wouldn't be able to finish this sermon because it's horrible. But how did the Gibeonites feel? The house of Saul lost seven. If Saul was trying to wipe out the Gibeonites, how many mothers were mourning their sons? How many fathers were gone? How many daughters? This is a difficult story. How old were the sons of Saul? Were they part of that war? What about Old Testament justice? An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That sounds interesting to us today, but it was to keep something worse from happening every time. You know, somebody takes somebody's eye, somebody else smashes their nose. Somebody smashes their nose, somebody else just kills somebody. Somebody kills somebody, somebody else sets the whole house on fire. And that's what an eye for an eye was keeping from happening. So you didn't have a Hatfield and McCoy situation. Let's think about the Gibeonites. They were promised safety. What does it say about the followers of God or the God who they worshiped when they were promised they were gonna be okay? And then they came and tried to wipe them out. They said they didn't need war, but they did feel that they needed justice. So how does Rizpah feel about all of this? Does God seem just to her when her sons 
are killed and not even buried. Burial was referenced in the Old Testament countless times. It was important. It was necessary. The Israelites even buried the fallen soldiers of the people that they fought and killed and won in battle. This was an honor-shame culture, and there was nothing worse. And it doesn't even matter. I can't even imagine in my culture, in our culture, somebody murdered and left to rot. Rizpah's name means burning coal. And let's look at what she did. She wasn't a blazing fire, but what did she do? We're going to look a little bit more. It says in verse 10, Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it on a rock for herself. From the beginning of harvest until rain fell on them from the heavens, she did not allow the birds of the air to come on the bodies by day or the wild animals by night. And when David was told what Rizpah, daughter of Ayah, the concubine of Saul, had done, he went and he took the bones of Saul, and I'm going to paraphrase from, for um, this for a little bit, and Jonathan, then when they were killed and they had been stole, he took those bones and he took the bones of these seven sons and he buried them together. I want to stop for a second and look at Rizpah. It says that she took sackcloth and spread it on a rock. So scholars think that if you look carefully, she made a tent for herself, which is a relief for me because the sun was blazing hot and I'm glad that she had some kind of shelter. And she did like Mary of Magdalene, but differently what she could because her sons were dead. She didn't want to see them eaten by animals and birds. How did she feel about God during that time? Was the eye of God on her like he was on Hagar? Was he still Elroy, the God who sees? I believe that he was. And it's interesting to me that it wasn't when the seven sons were killed that peace was brought to the land and God answered their prayers about the drought. It was when the bones were buried. Is God the God who sees you when you're suffering? Does he see you? Does he want to comfort? Does he want to come near to you as you're brokenhearted? I believe even in the midst of the worst, he still is Elroy, the God who sees. And a psalmist said, behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those that fear him, them that hope in his mercy. What do we do if we're not sure God is good anymore? When the unthinkable happens, it just depends on what we do with that grief if we let it simmer, if we sublimate, if we act out in anger, or if we go to God and say, in this situation, what do I do? Rizpah set up a tent and honored her dead. She would not be moved. She became a burning coal 
a living memorial to her love for her sons. See what you've done to my sons. She wasn't a burning fire, but you better watch out and keep your eye on a burning coal because it could become one. Israel was praying for release from the famine, but God didn't start listening until the bones were buried. It was because of Rizpah's horrible but faithful vigil that David heard of her and what she was doing. He was moved, the bones were buried, and for a time, the nation was healed. Not so with Absalom. Absalom's anger in response to a horrible act of injustice brought death and destruction to not only his family, but to his nation. If you'll turn with me to 2 Samuel 13, 20 through 22, I hate to take you through this horrible act. It makes me so angry. Um, so to set it up a little, Amnon is in love with his sister, which that's weird enough. It was his half-sister. Nobody happens to mention that in the text. He is so in lust for her. He wants her so badly, and he's got a, a friend, Jonadab, that says, hey, you're the son of the king. This is no problem. Pretend you're sick and ask the king if she can come in and feed you from her own hand. And then she'll be in your chamber and you can do what you want. And that's exactly what happened. And he sent everyone from the room and he raped her. And before he did, she said, please do not do this. Nothing like this should happen in Israel. Marry me, just marry me. But he wouldn't wait. And as often happens when we want something so badly, often like this, things turn from lust to hate. And as soon as he was done with her, he hated her. And she said, please don't send me away. If you do, that act will be worse than the first. Make me an honorable woman, let's get married. Don't do this. But he unbolted the door and he said to his servants, throw her out and locked the door on her. And a good future, it seemed to her, and we don't know if a good one happened. And she left the room, and I can just see him, her leaving the house. She put, sack, um, she put ashes on her head and tore the robe she was wearing. She put her hand on her head, and she went away, crying aloud as she went, just totally broken. I can see her just crying. And who sees her? Her brother, Absalom, sees her. And this is where we may have um, scripture to look at. Her brother Absalom said to her, and I don't know how he knew, but I think it's because he saw her coming from Amnon's house. And he says, has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother, don't take this to heart. But he was angry, and his anger simmered. He was calculating when he could get back. And it simmered and it sublimated and his grief grew so ugly. For two years, he did nothing. He didn't confront Amnon. He didn't make it right. It kind of reminds me of Hamlet. He waited, he waited. And two years later, he called a feast and he killed him. 
There's so many more layers to this story. There's so many more interesting things. This was a horrible act, and he asked David to do something about it, and David would not because Amnon was his oldest son, and he loved him, and so Absalom took justice into his own hands. I wonder if that grief that was sublimated, that was not addressed, changed Absalom. They say he was a beautiful man. From the top of his head to the bottom of the soles of his feet, he was perfect. No blemish was found in him. He had such luscious long hair. He cut it once a year, and this isn't a little bit um, conceited, is it? Then he would weigh it. I just, I don't know what to say about that. But was he a good man at some point? Could he have been an amazing leader? He certainly had the heart of a politician. Because David banishes him when he kills Amnon. Joab brings him back. He's not allowed to see the king. Then they put him back in the house and he is allowed to see the king. And seven years later, years where he stands in the gate and says, where are you from, brother? Oh, that tribe. You know what I wish? I wish someone was here to take the stories of those who need justice, but there isn't, so I guess it's me. And then he said he would, the Bible says, he would grab them and kiss them. And one by one, he won the hearts of Israel away from his father, the father that forgave him, the father that brought him back. And at one point, he had become such an ugly person that he was ready to kill the father who had loved him. Samuel, first, second Samuel 17, one through four. This is Ahithophel whose counsel was so good that people said it was like from God. Ahithophel who was on the side of Absalom. Interesting that it's Bathsheba's father. And Ahithophel says to him, okay, this is what we're gonna do. Because David gets up and leaves. I think David's a little over life in a way at this point. He gets up and leaves. And they're trying to decide what to do, how to chase him. And he said, let me choose 12,000 men and I will set out and pursue David tonight. Okay, just listen to this language. They're talking about Absalom's father. And when he's weary and discouraged, I will throw him into a panic and all the people who are with him will flee and I will strike down the king, only the king, your father, your dad, and I will bring back all the people to you as a bride comes home to her husband. What a happy scene it will be when your dad is killed. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. Does it remind you of what the high priest said of Jesus? One man to die for the whole country. You know the story. Absalom's beautiful hair is his downfall as it catches in a tree and Joab shoots him through the heart with three arrows and he dies in shame in an ugly way, having become an ugly person. But David still loves him in his sorrowful lament Absalom, oh Absalom, my son Absalom, echoes to me the lament of Jesus over Jerusalem. Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
you who killed the prophets. How long have I wanted to gather you in my arms like a mother chicken gathers her chicks, but you would not. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus said that in his, this world, we will have trouble. But that he's overcome the world. And the question is, what will you do when trouble comes to you? What have you done? Because I know it has. It has and it will. Death, disappointment, loss of cognition, of mobility. You're getting older, you can't do what you used to do. Living deaths that look like dementia, divorce, the loss of innocence, unwanted singlehood. What are you gonna do when it comes to you? Moses murdered, Deborah fought, Joseph faithfully kept doing a good job. David waited patiently and let the Lord bring the next king, which was him. Absalom rebelled and his submerged grief and anger brought destruction and death on his own family and the nation. Rizba loved how she could, defending and quietly honoring her dead. And her patient vigil brought attention to her dead sons and peace to a nation. Shira's grief caused her to build places of safety for her family to keep history from happening again, to protect them from being vulnerable, and also to provide for the other generations that would come. You remember she made upper best upper and lower Besharon, but did you know that she made Uzan Shiran that we talked about earlier that means listen to Shira? So today, I want to remind you of her creative, loving response to tragedy. And I want to say, listen to Shira. Learn from Rizpa. Let the results of Abraham's choices, but I do mean Absalom, Abraham could really instruct you too, but I'm really speaking of Absalom right now. So let the choices of Absalom instruct you. Grief is powerful. It will stunt, it will kill, it will create a new reality, or it will destroy. How will we use it? It depends on the time what is the right response? Sometimes we struggle to know what is best and the Lord tells us, this is the way. And some of the things you really wanna do will just be bring grief upon grief upon grief. Jerry Sitzer, who wrote the book, A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss was in a car accident. He was driving, and a drunk driver hit their van. And he watched and tried to help. As his wife, his daughter, and his mother all died in one fell stroke. As you can imagine, it took a long, long time to even be able to lift his head 
because everywhere he looked, someone or something reminded him of them, one or the other. He wrote two quotes from his book that I want to read to you now as we wrap up. Gifts of grace come to us all, but we must be ready to see and willing to receive these gifts. It will require a kind of sacrifice. The sacrifice of believing that however painful our losses, life can still be good. Good in a different way than before, but nevertheless good. And one other quote from his book, the experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. Instead, the defining moment can be our response to the loss. Bitterness, anger, creative, loving creation of something new. It is not what happens to us that matters so much is what happens in us. So what will we do in response to the difficult things that we have no control over? We've mentioned many losses. What about just the loss of a dream, something you thought would happen? The choices we make in response to the hardships and tragedies that come our way will have just as much an, an effect on us as the things we purposely choose to be part of our lives. Our responses will not only impact us, but our families and those around us. And my question to you is what legacy will your choices leave? Thank you so much for letting me preach to you today. And I will tell you this, this was for me, and I'm glad that you might feel like it's also for you.